0: Now to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We took the first section of 1 Timothy chapter 2 last week and emphasized prayer, how important it is, the reasons for prayer, how it pleases God, how it changes things, and I really think we're doing pretty good because last week I told you to pray for the president and he won the Nobel Peace Prize for no reason. <laughs> So if we pray for him again this week, I'm thinking he'll win the American League Cy Young Award. So, (laughs) no. But prayer is important. And coming into verse 8, he kind of bridges the gap. He's been talking about prayer, but now he begins to talk about men and women and the roles that God has for them. It's a potential minefield. Very few people will ever teach on this passage because... It says some things that might be sort of disturbing to us uh, in our modern society, but hopefully we can come through it and see what God is actually saying. Um, When you read it, it tells women to dress correctly, be quiet, (laughs) don't teach. (laughs) And on the basis of that, it's because Adam was formed before Eve and Eve was gullible and deceived, Adam wasn't, and so ladies, go have babies, and if you do that, you'll get saved. Um, No, really, that's what it seems to say. Let's read these verses first. I desire, therefore, that the men, that's the word in air, men as opposed to women, pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, Dialogizomai, it's a word that means you're not going back and forth. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to usurp authority Over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self control. So, what can I add to that? hopefully something. To give it a context, um, turn back to Galatians chapter 3 really quickly. Because Paul would teach with consistency. So in order to understand one difficult passage, it helps to check out other passages with similar ideas and themes. In verse 28 of Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So, however we interpret 1 Timothy chapter 2, we can't have it contradict what is clearly stated in Galatians 3, and that is that women are not inferior to men, that God sees us all the same, there's an equality. An equality that in those days was a radical statement to even make. I mean, this may sound a little condescending in our modern society, but in that society, to suggest that men and women are of equal value was a radical statement. And yet Paul made it clear that that's true. But he says a bunch of stuff here that is difficult to package together and see how it all fits in and what he's saying. So first, the easy part is verse 8. Men need to pray everywhere. Lifting up holy hands, that is, allowing God to forgive you and to clean, cleanse you. Without wrath, the Greek word there is orge. You're not, not to be angry, passionate people uh, in your prayers. Not to be doubting, not to be wishy-washy, but men are here exhorted to be prayer warriors. And as we saw last week, Paul gave a lot of reasons why people ought to pray. But now he says, you men, I'm talking to you. See, women, you almost don't need to remind them to pray. For some reason, and I'm not saying every woman, but there's a tendency among women to be very comfortable with coming before the Lord and laying their requests out before Him. On the other hand, men don't handle this very well. And if you're going to get a bunch of men to come to a prayer meeting, you better have pancakes. They're just not going to make it. <laughs> women, they'll always drop everything and pray. They pray a lot. I, I know from the feedback I got Last Sunday, as we talked about prayer, I heard from so many women who are just living lives of prayer. And um, I'm so blessed by that. I'm so blessed by all the women in our church who just love to hold up prayer requests to the Lord for others. And, you know, frankly, if I really want prayer, I'd probably ask women to pray for me because they just get this a lot of times better than men do. And I, we don't need to speculate as to the reason. I think the truth of that statement is pretty undeniable. I know there are exceptions, but the truth is men aren't very good at admitting their needs. Men don't like to make themselves vulnerable. And there's nowhere where we are more vulnerable than when we come before the Lord in prayer and we say, I need help. I need you to work. And so Paul specifically calls out the men in this context and said, make sure you just don't let the women be the prayer warriors. Men, take a leadership role and make sure that you are spending time with God in prayer everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And now he says, in like manner, a similar type of commandment. He says also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Now, it's certainly not saying that women can't wear any of those things and all they are to wear are good works please, God wants you to, to be dressed. and But he also, in talking about modesty, this word for modesty, it's not primarily at issue that you shouldn't dress in a seductive sort of way, in a sleazy way. Often when people teach on this passage, they will drag the women through the coals and say, You don't know what you're doing. The way you dress is causing men to stumble, and that's why they don't pray, and that's why the men are such dirtbags, because, you know, the way you ladies dress. Um, I hate to tell you, but men are dirtbags, no matter how you dress. (laughs) And a really attractive person can wear a trash bag, and a man's going to find a way to lust after her. So he's not... there are some women who, wouldn't matter what they wore, <laughs> um, it's just not clicking for them. Now, please, don't get mad at me. I'm not talking about you. I'm, I'm talking about those ugly people out there. <laughs> but notice the things that he brings up in terms of modesty. Braided hair, gold, pearls, expensive clothes. I don't know any man anywhere that goes, wow, look at the jewelry on that lady. If it's just not, that, he's not talking about, oh, stumbling someone in that kind of a way. More his, his emphasis is probably on dress in such a way that people can see the inward you and make sure that you spend enough time and focus enough attention on, dwelling your, on, on developing your character rather than just fixing up the outside. Because there are some people who get really dolled up and fixed up, but you get to know them, and inside there's this grossness, there's this ugliness. And Paul's saying, ladies, you care about how you dress, and that's fine. But make sure that you're giving equal concern to what's going on in your heart. So he's not forbidding people looking nice. But he's just saying, and probably by the reference to expensive clothes, he may be also alluding to something that went on there in Ephesus where Timothy was, whereby there was a huge division between the haves and the have-nots. And you were considered to be valuable and special based on how expensive you dressed. And you could dress in such a way that made Women who didn't have the opportunity to buy nice clothes just feel second class. Sometimes I've seen that happen in different churches, where I don't think I've seen it here really, but where women feel like, you know, I'm a mom, I'm trying to get myself out to a women's Bible study, and you know, I'm just lucky if I can get there. But I don't want to feel like I have to have all my makeup on and my nicest clothes and all that kind of stuff, because... I just can't do that. And it would be a real shame if women would stay away from church because they were made to feel that they aren't good enough when they compare themselves with each other. Now, why does he not say this to men? Why does he only say it to women? (laughs) Because I don't know any man that would look at another man who's all dressed up and go, oh, I feel so inferior. If, if I see a man that's overdressed, I'm like, you sucker. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and nothing feels worse than when my wife says, I-, I think you should dress up for this. And I'm like, oh, I hate to dress up. And, but I do it to make my wife happy. And then I show up and there's like people in jeans and t-shirts and I feel like an idiot. <laughs> so a little different with guys and girls and I'm sure it was back then, the man's wardrobe was pretty basic. I would look at a man who's really dolled up and I would just go, I hope he's just metro. You know <laughs> and I'd frankly pity him. <laughs> but women get this competitive thing going. And a part of being the people that God wants us to be is to not get on that treadmill, to not compete to not feel the pressure of having to look a certain way and come across a certain way. He's saying, basically, relax, ladies. Make sure that your good works are what, what jumps out at others. And then he says, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I don't allow a woman to teach or to usurp authority over a man, but to be in silence. Now, He's not saying that women can't say anything in church. In fact, he's not saying that a woman couldn't teach and have a good influence on a man. We see examples in Scripture where women not only prophesied but taught. So you don't want to just take this like there are some churches where because of the Scripture and others similar to it like 1 Corinthians 14, they would say women can't even teach Sunday school. They can't say a word in church. Now, I don't know how that would work. I mean, how many women would actually go to church if they couldn't talk? Um, (laughs) But it's not really what he's saying. Um, This word for silence is a word that means to calm down, to stop striving, to relax and to find some gentility. Um, Look uh, back at... um, In uh, let's see, just turn over probably one page to um, 2 Thessalonians. And Paul ends up using this same word for, for silent. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. He's talking to about particularly some ladies who were causing trouble in the church. And beginning with verse 10, he said, for even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Now, this was a problem that some of the women had. They thought they were entitled. If they weren't married or they got a divorce or they lost their husband, they just thought, well, everybody ought to take care of me. Maybe they had been always single. But Paul says, hey, you need to work. If you don't work, you don't eat. And then he goes on to say, for we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner... Not working at all, but they're busybodies. They're gossiping. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through the Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. He's basically saying, if you are someone who's stirring up you know, problems, you always have something to say. You're constantly a busybody just put a lid on it mellow out a little bit just experiment a little bit with shutting up sometimes and allowing god to do a work and so, and we know that women all the all the research indicates that women speak at least twice as many men every day as twice as many words every day than men do and so and, and he's not saying you shouldn't do that but he's saying Man, when you talk that much, you're running the risk of creating problems and stirring things up. He ends up saying the same thing later in 1 Timothy, and when we get to that chapter, we'll deal with that as well. But again, saying, in this case, to widows, he said, if a widow is young and she loses her husband, she should get married, have kids because otherwise she's just going to be sitting around gossiping all the time. The church should not allow single women to to freeload off the church. They need to go and work and establish um, a, a means of supporting themselves. Church shouldn't be doing it, and the people in the church shouldn't be doing it. You should never give anything or help anyone who just refuses to work. Um, ultimately, we see that that being a busybody often goes with that. And so, you know, here he says, he says um, that to live in a way that's proper for a woman and learn in silence or be mellow, submission, fit in. And personally, he said, I don't allow a woman to teach or to take authority over a man, but to be in silence. Now, we'll talk about this in just a moment. But there are some people who, in trying to interpret this passage, they assume that he couldn't mean that. And so one of the things that they would refer to is, again, that scripture that we read in Galatians 3, 28, where it says "You know, you know that there is no bond or free and there's no male or female. And they would say... You know, Paul told slaves to submit to masters, but that wasn't right, that was just practical. And so in the same way, he's telling women to submit to men and to church authority because that was the society they lived in, and therefore, if you carry it down through the ages, even as slavery has been mostly um, obliterated, so also these these um, sexual mores should also be taken out of the way. There are people who interpret this to say, well, they use something called trajectory hermeneutics. That is, the ball started rolling in those days, but we've progressed a lot since then, and you need to interpret this in light of the culture in those days. And if if that makes you feel better, I'm not going to argue with you about it. But the problem is, what Paul uses for evidence to support this statement. Because he says, first of all, in verse 13, Adam was formed first and then Eve. That's not easy to understand, but there seems to be something in the design of men and women that a woman's highest role is to support a man that God gives her to. And, of course, to support each other and to work with each other and all of that, but a woman's highest fulfillment, according to so much of what the Scripture says, is for her to find a a guy that she fits in with and can work together with. This is important because Jesus is referring to something that happened even before the fall, before sin came around, and he's saying, That's one of my reasons for why I am saying that women need to follow a particular role that God has called them to. Then he goes on and he says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. So he says there was a difference in why Adam sinned and why Eve sinned. And we know in another place, Paul said, By one man, sin entered into the world because Adam is the one who sinned and caused us to inherit that. Now, many times people go, wait a minute, wasn't Eve the one who started it? See, now he's using something that happened after the fall, and he's saying, here's a reason why women need to have a separate role from men. Now, I don't think he's saying women are just gullible, though they might be. I don't think that's the point if we think about Genesis 3, if we think about what happened there, I think that he's not really picking on Eve because, again, it wasn't through Eve that sin entered into the world. It was through Adam. Why? Because Adam wasn't fulfilling the role to which God had called him to. Adam was not providing a covering for his wife. Adam was not with her. He left her out on her own, to have a conversation with the devil, and she fell without his protection. And, you know, then when he made the choice to sin willfully, she was fooled. He wasn't fooled. He just did it because he wanted to be with Eve, and that's admirable, albeit foolish. And so I think what Paul is saying here is that there's something in the way that happened whereby... And I don't think he's attacking women here at all. I think he's attacking men. That's where the discussion started. And he's saying, the roles of men and women get messed up if a man doesn't be the man that God wants him to be. If he doesn't provide spiritual leadership, everyone ends up losing. Now then he goes on, and verse 15 is a tough one. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. That seems to say that a woman, if she has babies and raises them correctly, that she'll get saved. Well, that's certainly not what it's saying. We have a tendency to use this term saved in a way that's different than, than the way it was used broadly in the Scriptures. We use it as being when you're saved, is the time that you come and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you're born again, and your life gets to start over. And that certainly is a rescue operation. That certainly is an example of salvation, no doubt. However, this word, sozo, is used in a lot of different senses in the New Testament to refer to someone just making it, just. Finding their niche. In fact, we, we can see this over in um, chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. Chapter 4 and verse 12. Where Paul's talking to Timothy and telling him, don't let anyone despise your youth, be an example of the believers in word, conduct, love, spirit, faith, purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine, Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the elders. Meditate on these things. Take your your ministry seriously. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. So Paul tells Timothy, your rescue, the way that your life can be turned around in a way that it will really be fruitful, that it will really matter, comes when you figure out what God wants you to do and you get in that, you submit to him and you get in that place where he can lead and guide you and man, you'll be saved from a wasted life. You'll be saved from all sorts of hassles. It'll get better. He wasn't saying, this is how you'll become a Christian. But he was saying, you know, this is what your um, ultimate, you're going to find your calling when you do this. And so again, it's in the same context, just a couple chapters later. So coming back to chapter 2, verse 15, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Now, one interpretation of this verse is that it's referring to Jesus coming as the seed of a woman. And, you know, in Genesis 3, and that's in the context here, um, it is said that a woman would, a part of her consequences was that she would bear children and want to have children, even though it hurts really bad to have children. And so, you know, but here he says, and and then in Genesis 3 it says, but your seed is going to come, and though Satan will bruise his heel, he'll crush Satan's head. Ultimate defeat of Satan is going to happen in your seed. And so... There are some people who interpret verse 15 as just saying, you know, hey, salvation comes <laughs> through Jesus Christ being born. To me, I think that's a little stretch with the context. And so, I, but you can take that position if you want. A lot of good people do. What I think is Paul is glorifying the role of a mother and saying, this is highest calling. This is the most special thing that you could ever do. In their society there in Ephesus, there were all kinds of temptations. And women were actually dominating so many of these false religions. And so he's saying, you know what? That's not what I want you to do in the church. I want you to mellow out a little bit and first discover what your calling is as a mom. And realize that's your first blessing. Now it doesn't mean that you know somebody who doesn't have kids isn't saved. It doesn't mean that a mom can only raise kids and isn't allowed to work part-time or to work full-time or whatever. That's not what he's teaching. But what he's saying is, ladies, understand every day what an incredible privilege you have to raise those children. And when you teach your children and see them grow up loving God, that'll mean more to you than any preacher who sees thousands of people coming to Christ because you are bringing your own children to Christ. And, and that can be advanced and move forward. And there's this, you know, what a blessing it is when you have an opportunity to do that. It's not to say that men don't have that opportunity as a father. But the women were getting antsy and just wanting to resist that role. Now when we talk about the roles of men and women, I begin to look at it and go really why is God doing it this way? Because there are some women that just aren't cut out to be moms, but they're great accountants or something else. There are some some men who are great with children and they ought to do it. And He's not He's not belying that necessarily. But what he's saying is, men, don't resist the role that God has given you. And women, don't resist the role that God has given you. Now, especially troubling through all of this, and as we think about the roles of men and women, there are some women who are better preachers than a whole lot of men. And there are certainly women who have a deeper walk with the Lord than a lot of men. And there are probably some dads who are way better with kids than women are. So is this just a cultural thing? I don't think so. Because what God calls us to do is to go against our natural propensity, to reject what it is that society is programming within us, and instead to say, you listen to me and submit to me. I have no doubt that women would run a church in some ways better than men, but God doesn't do things the easy way. And so God says, you know what, men, I know you really don't have a huge desire to be involved in leadership, but I'm calling you to do that. I know that prayer isn't a huge priority for you but that's something that I want you to do. And women, I know how stupid those men are that you're being told to submit to. And I get that, but you do what I tell you to do. You listen to my word. Because it all comes down to ultimately submitting to God. Am I going to believe what he says and do my best to fulfill the roles to which he calls me? Or am I going to think really hard and try to figure out a way to where... I don't have to do that. Make up excuses for myself or bend the rules or whatever. And he says, no, you're going to find your salvation ultimately. You're going to find your blessing, your fulfillment, if you do what I am calling you to do. Now, again, I don't think this means that women could never speak in church. That's not what it's saying. I Personally, I listen to some women on the radio, and I'm amazed how effective they can be as ministers. I, I, hear, I was hearing, listening to Cheryl Broderson the other day, and she's just an amazing teacher. And I can benefit from her. I can listen to her. But when it comes to running the church, when it comes to pastoring a church, God has his reasons why he says, the woman will be better off taking a submissive role, and the man should be forced to step up and be the man that God has called him to be. And so that's our exhortation from him. And I would just say, okay, don't worry about what he said to everybody else. What's God saying to you? Is there some way, men, where you're not stepping up where God would want you to? Women, is there some area in which you'd be better to tone it down, to chill out a little bit, to not say so much, get off the phone, and, and just begin to really seek the Lord and encourage your husband if you're married, and, and to be supportive of men who are in roles even though they struggle with those roles. That's the way God chooses to do it. And I, I think it's a pretty good plan because I know that there's really nothing within me that wants to run things. I really, I really don't. But God calls us and He says, I want you to do it. And God calls you to do what he is calling you to do. I would just encourage you to listen to him and to fulfill the role that he has for you. If you're a mom, realize that that's the greatest blessing you could ever have in life, and that comes first. Not that you can't do other things, but that comes first. And dads need to be dads. Dads need to get more involved with a relationship with the Lord. Shame on us men when our women... Our wives are more spiritual than we are. They're taking that leadership. We need to step up and provide a covering for them. And to encourage them and to allow them to encourage us to be who God called us to be. And that's really what he's saying here, I think. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Sometimes it's difficult because we are difficult. We just rebel against what you tell us to do. And yet when we submit to you, we realize what a blessing it is to allow you to be God, to allow us to settle into what you've called us to, to help us to grow in the way that you want us to grow. So Lord, speak to us from your word, convict us where we need it, help us to make the adjustments that you would have many of us to make.